1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Takes from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Amy. And today I'm talking to Jessica McCabe. She is the creator of the YouTube channel How to ADHD, where she shares fun, relatable, and research-based educational content about ADHD and neurodiversity with her 2 million followers. Her content helps listeners understand and accept their unique brains while getting tips and tricks to help navigate life with ADHD. Today, Jessica is here to talk with us about her new new book How to ADHD an Insider's Guide to Working with Your Brain Not Against It. Welcome Jessica.
2: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. This is a great podcast. <laughs>
1: Thank you. All right, so we're going to start with the Insider's Guide part. You are somebody who really knows whereof they speak about ADHD and tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so I know about ADHD from all of the angles. I have it. I have family members with it. I have a partner with it. I have talked to many people in my community who have it, spoken with ADHD experts, read all the research papers. At this point, I think it's safe to say I understand ADHD quite well, (laughs) but I didn't always.
1: Tell us about that. You were first diagnosed at 12, but that was only kind of the beginning of the story.
2: That was the very beginning. Yeah. So I was a scattered kid. I lost jackets all the time. My mom said I'd lose my head if it wasn't attached. I was daydreamy, stared out the window, would lose myself in books. I didn't really know how to fit in with my peers. But you know, I was a smart kid. I did well in school and nobody was really worried until I went to middle school. And suddenly I was responsible for bringing my own books to class and remembering to do my homework and my locker combination and stuff. And things started to fall apart. And at that point is when I got diagnosed. But it wasn't until I was 32 years old, so 20 years later, that I actually started to understand my diagnosis. What I was told and my understanding was that I had trouble focusing and these medication would help me focus. I thought everything else was my fault, (laughs) all my difficulty with planning and prioritizing and sustaining effort toward long term goals and my emotion dysregulation, like all of that stuff I thought was just me being a terrible human and not trying hard enough. And I just needed to find the right organizational system or the right self-help book. And then I could reach my potential. Right. Or I just needed to put in more effort. I needed to try harder,
1: Mm, try harder. Right. So I,
2: I went 20 years being diagnosed and going to doctors without understanding anything other than I got distracted. And
1: that's like one small part of it. But a kid with ADHD has a hard time paying attention in class. That might be where it's first picked up on because the teacher sees 20 kids who behave a certain way, and maybe two or three others that don't.
2: Right. That trouble paying attention is what I knew. I had an attention deficit. That's all I knew. And even that aspect of it, I was wrong about. Like, I didn't understand that because it's not actually an attention deficit. What it is, it's difficulty regulating your attention. And I didn't understand that. So I didn't really take my ADD. It was what I was diagnosed with originally. I didn't take it that seriously because the one symptom that I supposedly had, like I knew I could focus when something was engaging to me. Like I could focus just fine. So like, it even that just didn't feel like that big a deal. And now I understand, no, that attention regulation is the issue. It's difficulty choosing, like you might be able to pay attention really well to some things, but it's that you don't get to choose which things you're going to pay attention to. So there were times where I would pour myself into a project and do a really, really good job because it was engaging to me. It was exciting to me. And so then the times that I couldn't focus, I blamed myself. Just knowing that that comes from the same place, that distractibility comes from the same place as that hyper-focus. It's difficulty regulating attention. You said
1: something in the book that I had never heard it put this way before, that ADHD is like a door that's always open. It has helped me so much over my time parenting a kid with ADHD to understand that, again, it's not a deficit of attention. It's a surfeit of attention. There's too much. I don't have ADHD, but I have the same like if there's a bird tweeting outside, I can't concentrate on what I'm doing. I can't just sort of tune that out like somebody else might be able to. And again, it's not a deficit of character. That's brain wiring.
0: Right.
2: Our brains don't filter out sensory input the same way that a neurotypical brain might, where a neurotypical brain might do some of that automatically. We have to do it manually. We have to manually shut the door. We have to manually put headphones on and, you know, do things to help ourselves focus or take medication so that our brains can do a little bit more of that automatically for us. Right in the beginning
1: of the book, you talk about the word disability, as applied to ADHD, and that some people might want to use that word, not want to use that word, that you are very much in favor of using that word and that terminology.
2: Yeah, disability is not a bad word. It's something that is heavily stigmatized just like ADHD is heavily stigmatized, but all it means is that you are experiencing an impairment in one or more life activities. So that can include focusing, that include working, it can include walking, it can include all these different things, right? And so it's important to understand that there's a reason that we use this term which is there are protections that come along with it. The Americans with Disabilities Act protects people with disabilities from discrimination in the workplace. We are allowed and we are entitled to accommodations, reasonable accommodations in the workplace. And that's actually really important. And so it felt really weird for me to use the term, both because of the stigma against it, but also because like, am I disabled? Like, is this a disability? I felt kind of like I wasn't disabled enough to claim that. But then when I look back at my struggles. Do I have trouble completing projects? Like, yeah, like looking back at my life, it's a whole mess of projects I've started and abandoned. I've dropped out of community college. I didn't finish massage school. Like I just clearly there is an impairment there. But in the moment it just doesn't feel like that big a deal, right? Like I got distracted. Like it's funny, it's quirky, it's cute. But no, it's actually quite disabling.
1: And there's this internalized ableism, as you said, that gets in Your own way of saying like, yes, this is something that I I'm entitled to these protections around. It's counterproductive it made a lot of sense to me.
2: Yeah. There's this idea that like, I shouldn't need this. I should be able to do without this. And I think with ADHD, that's exacerbated for two reasons. One is what's called an unseen disability. You can't look at it. You can't touch it. You can't measure it on a chart. Like you can't pee on a pregnancy (laughs) stick and be like, oh, it's positive, Right. right? Like you can't see it. So that's part of it. It can be hard to remember that invisible does not mean imaginary. We're not making this up. This is a real struggle. But the other aspect of it is that we're not always struggling right like if something is engaging to our brains we might actually do really well with it we might outperform our peers with something and that variability makes it really hard kind of like it's hard for an ambulatory wheelchair user to be taken seriously sometimes if they don't always need the wheelchair then it can seem like oh this is a matter of willpower like you don't necessarily need this thing because sometimes you don't whereas I'm short right like I'm five foot three. I will always need a step stool if I'm going to reach the top <laughs> shelf. Like always, I'm not going to like be tall one day and short the next day. That's not going to happen. I always need this thing so it's a little easier to accept that I need that help. But yeah, between internalized ableism of like it is somehow you're somehow morally superior if you don't struggle with these things and then that like sometimes I don't struggle with these things. It's really hard to accept it.
1: And you made the point in the book that you get used to things being hard when you're somebody with ADHD you don't have all the support or you're not utilizing all the support you could. You just think that you are going through some of the things you say in this book. Oh, I'm just irresponsible. I'm just careless. I'm just messy. I'm just not trying hard enough. Right. And you take on all of those things.
2: Right. Because you don't know what it's like for other people. You just you see your exterior and you see other people's exterior, but you don't know what it's like in their brain. You don't know that like when they want to sit down and do homework, they can just choose to do that. And it's really tough. It's you're comparing your interior to other people's exterior. And and it just, it doesn't work. It's really hard to tell. So a lot of people who take meds for the first time are like, is this what it's like for everybody else? What the, (laughs) what have I, man, like I've been playing on hard mode and didn't even realize it because it is your normal. Yes. It makes
1: so much sense to me. and It's very helpful as a parent to understand that that's part of it, that they're not going to necessarily tell you this is really hard for me because they don't know that that's not a human experience. It's a personal experience. How would they know to tell you that?
2: Right. And so what I try to tell parents is like, if your kid is struggling, there's a reason they're struggling. If they're not doing what you are asking them to do, like there might be an impairment there. There might be something getting in the way. It can look intentional, But I have spoken to so many people with ADHD, and almost all of them are trying so much harder than their neurotypical peers. And the only time that they're not trying is when they've gotten so discouraged, they've given up.
1: So Jessica, you are in your 30s, out of school, when you do all this research for yourself and realize that all of it, so many things that you struggled with were all the same thing, were all ADHD, and you just weren't aware. How did you feel looking back at all the times you internalized it as being something else?
2: It was interesting. There was almost a grief process to it. And I hear this from a lot of people who are diagnosed later in life too, where you look back and you wonder what could have been if you'd known this sooner, right? Like all of the missed opportunities, all of the, the shame you picked up and the anxiety and the depression and all of these things that maybe could have been avoided if you'd known a little sooner. So it's really like sad. There was a grief process involved, but it was also exciting because it meant that there were answers, right? Like if this was a real... Issue. If there were real challenges involved, then there must be real solutions too. And so it was really validating and very encouraging for me to learn about these impairments, right? It sounds like it would be depressing, but for me, it helped so much to learn what the things that I was struggling with were called because I had labels for them, but they weren't good labels. (laughs) Like I was messy and irresponsible and lazy and like all of these really negative things and knowing, or I was dumb, I was stupid, like all this really problematic ableist language that I had internalized. And what it actually was, was like, oh, I have working memory impairments. My working memory is a relative area of weakness for me, which explains why, even though I was a really gifted student, I still felt really stupid sometimes. I couldn't remember people's names or I couldn't answer a teacher's question because by the time they got to the third answer, I had forgotten what the question was. There were so many times that I struggled in ways that I didn't understand and learning the language for how to explain it was so empowering. It felt like, learning the error codes on a printer so that you can actually go, oh, it's out of paper. Cool. I'll go get more paper. I found strategies for the specific things that I struggled with instead of just the blanket solution being do better, try harder.
1: In my own case, with my own child with ADHD, I was putting supports in place. I was watching it. I was getting advice. I was doing the research. But there was one thing I didn't do, which was share the diagnosis with my kid. Because I thought, why hamper them with that information? Why have them think that there's something wrong? I didn't tell the kid in the moment. And then I didn't tell the kid the next week either. And then my child later came to me and said, I think I have this thing. And here I had been operating under that assumption and trying to parent the child accordingly before the kid understood it for themselves. I thought I was doing the right thing. Like, no need to burden this kid with that information. But you would argue it's completely the opposite, no matter what the age of the kid?
2: Yeah, I think that sharing it with them at an age appropriate level is actually really important. They need to understand how their brain works because they're the one who has to work with their brain. You can do a lot as a parent, but they're the ones operating it on a daily basis with everything they do. And if they don't have answers for why they're struggling, they're going to invent them or they're going to accept the ones that society tells them and they're inaccurate and they don't point them to the strategies that can help. It's not as empowering as I knew I had the diagnosis, but because nobody explained what it meant to me, I was really disempowered when I ran into struggles. I didn't know what to do about that. And I understand, like, as a parent, you don't want to hamper your kid. You don't want your kid to think that there's anything wrong with them. And that's totally fine. But the problem is your kid's getting the messages that there's something wrong with them regardless. And so them understanding what it is that they're struggling with, I think, is actually really important.
1: We're talking to Jessica McCabe. She is the author of the new book, How to ADHD. And we'll be right back. optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout while traveling or at the end of a long night, sports research hydrate electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven
0: essential vitamins and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry
1: lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50%
0: off your purchase of Hydrate. S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. So Jessica, I wanted to talk about the very unique perspective
1: you can offer to everyone listening, which is the idea of not parenting a kid with ADHD, but parenting as someone with ADHD and how that affects your parenting?
2: Yeah, I think this is really important. There's a lot out there about how to parent a kid with ADHD, but not a whole lot about what if you're the one with ADHD, whether or not your kid has ADHD, like it's going to impact how you can parent because kids need routine and structure and for you to read all of the emails from the school and things that are really difficult for people with ADHD to stay on top of. And if you're also being told, hey, Do this to support your child who has ADHD, like set up routines and set up systems and and do all of these things. It's really easy to end up with a lot of shame around the fact that you know what would help your kid and you can't do it. Like you're failing, you know, quote unquote failing as a mom because or as a parent because, You're not doing the things that your kid needs. Well, we have a brain that makes it hard to do that even for ourselves, and so once you add another person into the mix, a tiny human into the mix, it it gets even harder. So I'm just at the very beginning of that because I am currently seven months pregnant, but already there's so much that I'm expected to stay on top of and keep track of. And doctors are like, "Oh yeah, just do this and this and this," and I'm like, "Okay, I'll just do that." I have to remember to take prenatals, and I have to set up my appointments and go to my appointments and avoid eating certain things and not take. Like there's just already a litany of things that you have to do to be a quote unquote good mom that are really difficult. The self-care has to be better. I have to go to the dentist regularly and I have to make sure that I'm brushing my teeth all the time. There's just so much that I already feel the pressure that I need to do that it's already a challenge. And then if it turns out that my child has ADHD and needs extra supports, that's going to be a whole other challenge. Level, But one of the things that I did immediately was I talked to my partner about this and I'm like, look, I get that a lot of times the executive function stuff falls on women. We have to manage everybody's schedules and carpools and be the one to respond to all the emails and figure out childcare and all of this stuff falls to women really early on, even during pregnancy. I'm like, cool. I have to be be the one to find the doctor and the childcare and the doula and the everything. Right. And I had to talk to my partner and say, I don't have the executive function for this. I need this to be a joint effort. And so we've been really intentional in talking through where are your strengths? Where are my strengths? What are you going to handle? And what am I going to handle? And figuring out those areas of responsibility has been really important for us because I can't, I don't have the executive function to do what society expects of women that's not even getting into the fact that like it's not fair that if you have (laughs) you know if you're both it should right (laughs) right if you both have full-time jobs like it shouldn't fall to the woman anyway but i see how easily it happens because you're the one who's pregnant so i told my partner one time like when he wasn't doing the thing that he was supposed to do and i had to do it or i had to take over and i looked at him and i was like it's not optional for me it's not optional for me because i'm the one carrying this child right like it the buck stops at me I need it to not be optional for you either. I need this to be as like as serious for both of us because I can't opt out. I can't not carry my child around inside my belly today. (laughs) So I need you to do your part. I need you to support. And that's, it's been tough. And it's also been frustrating for him because he's seen that he gets left out of a lot of things. If I'm the one who emails for childcare and I say, hey, my partner and I are looking, here's his email address. I copy him on it. They only respond to me. It's almost by default, right?
1: The default parent,
2: right. Right. And if you have ADHD and you are the default parent, that's really tough. Because even if you ask for help, you are still carrying the mental load and you are still responsible for the executive functioning for the entire family. And that's hard.
1: And something else I think is hard for every default parent is that there is so much, right? There is a, just a barrage of stuff you're supposed to be worrying about, particularly when you're pregnant and the baby's little. It just feels... Like what am I forgetting right now? Right, that's true for all of us. The advice that we try to give in this podcast is separate out the wheat from the chaff, and like this is important, this is not important right now. This can wait. This is really a decision. This is really not a thing. But you are constantly decision treeing. oh, you know what? I'm gonna let them have some gummy bears today. Who cares? And there's just constant decision making happening, and yeah, it's hard for everybody.
2: And that's hard when you have ADHD because you have difficulty prioritizing right and you also like me- there's memory issues involved like working memory there's different challenges it-, it would be really easy for me to be like oh okay cool like today I'll let it go like they'll have the gummy bears but like in two weeks it might not occur to me that that's happened like seven times in the <laughs> last two weeks maybe it's time to not let them have gummy bears all the time right like keeping track of things staying on top of things like all of these things are really really challenging Your child does not have a very developed executive function system. A lot of parenting is being the executive function for your child. And so if you yourself have impairments in executive function, that's going to be difficult.
1: You talk in the book about how executive function is delayed in people with ADHD. It's not necessarily absent. It's just delayed on a flatter trajectory by up to 30%, you said, which I hadn't heard before. So explain to somebody who doesn't even know what executive function is, what that means and how it might play out.
2: Yeah. Executive function is the, it's like the CEO of the brain. It's you're planning, prioritizing, sustaining effort towards long-term goals, making good decisions. It's the things that we associate with being an adult. And that's because the prefrontal cortex, where a lot of that executive function functions is one of the last parts of the brain to develop. And in neurotypical people, it, Finishes developing around age 25, which is probably why that's the age at which you can rent a car. But in people with ADHD, it does tend to be a few years behind, up to 30% behind. So Dr. Barkley talks about this. If you have an 18 year old child that you are sending off to college and that child has ADHD, you are kind of sending a 12-year-old off to college in terms of their executive function. They're gonna need a lot more support. So that's part of it too is, you know, I'm now 41 and I'm having my first child and that's because it did take me a long time for my executive function to finish developing, for me to understand my ADHD, for me to get to a point in my life where I felt like I was ready to have a kid and by the time that happened, it was like, oh, like <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am now considered a geriatric pregnancy. Like, whoops. It just it took me longer to get here. If I have a child with ADHD, it's going to take them longer, too. So I'm going to have to support their executive function for longer. And that's I think it's really helpful for parents to understand if you've got a child where you're like, they should be able to clean the room on their own by now you know, act your age, all that, like they are acting their age, they're just acting their executive function age as opposed to their actual age, right? So it's really important to know that your kid isn't necessarily doing this on purpose. If they seem like they're needing more support or struggling harder than their their peers, it's because they are, their brains aren't as developed. Can you talk about set
1: shifting? This was something else you discussed in your book that made a lot of sense to me, but I hadn't quite heard it explained that way before.
2: Yeah, set shifting is the ability to shift Between cognitive tasks. So, shifting between talking and listening, or shifting between reading and cooking. So, if I go to cook a recipe, I'm gonna have a bit of a hard time shifting between, like, let me read the recipe, now let me do the recipe. And part of the difficulty with set shifting for people with ADHD is the impairments in both working memory and response inhibition. So working memory is the ability to hold multiple pieces of information in your head while you work with it. So if I read something from a recipe, now I have to go implement that. I have to remember what I read while putting it into action. And so, if your working memory is impaired, you essentially have fewer slots. And so, stuff is going to fall out of your brain a little bit faster. So, there's a lot of times where I'm even with a box of mac and cheese, I'm like, cool, these are the instructions. Now I'm going to go do the mac and cheese, throw the box away, uh, like fishing the box back out of the trash. Like, I forget what I just read. It's a working memory challenge, but also response inhibition is an issue for people with ADHD. So, like, I might wander off, right? Like I hear a noise outside while I'm cooking and I wander off and, I, and now I forget that that's on the stove. So there's a bunch of different executive functions that are impaired in ADHD and they can kind of work together to create further impairments. So if you have impaired working memory and impaired response inhibition, like your ability to quickly and accurately switch between cognitive tasks is also going to be impaired.
1: I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about solutions and what does work and how you can help your kid or yourself with ADHD. And one of the first ones I wanted to underline is that people with ADHD, I'm quoting from your book right now, people with ADHD often work better and faster when they're not forcing themselves to do things in the right way, right in quotes being the neurotypical way. This is really important as a parent and a lesson I had to learn Again and again, that a kid who is like going up two steps and down two steps and up two steps and down two steps, while you're saying, "Don't forget, you need your baseball mitt," and then we're going to Aunt Carol stand still and listen to me by looking at me and acting like you're listening to me is how I, a neurotypical person, think my child should focus and pay attention to what I'm saying. When, of course, what I learned over time is. If I really want the person to hear what I'm saying, let them go up the step and down the step and up the step and down the step. But by doing that, they're actually listening better, not worse.
2: Yeah, it's so counterintuitive. But part of it is our brains are chronically understimulated. And so sometimes we need that extra level of stimulation in order to be able to be present and focus. And so that can look like using a fidget toy. It can look like moving while somebody's talking to us. And it's very counterintuitive. Like like you said, as a neurotypical person, Your idea of what somebody paying attention is, is them standing still, looking at you, paying attention, because if they are moving around too much, then they must be paying attention to that. Whereas somebody with ADHD often needs to be doing something else in order to be able to pay attention to you. And so a lot of, I think, parenting a child with ADHD or even working with your own ADHD is letting go a little bit of what you think should work and paying attention to what does work.
1: And it's so important because kids who are earlier on in this journey or who go to a school where the teachers don't understand it, They're going to spend a lot of time trying to sit still with their hands folded. And you can do that, right? But then that's all you're doing. Then you're definitely not listening to the quiz for next week.
2: Right. Because you're using working memory slots, which again, we already have fewer slots to begin with a lot of us, but you're using some of those to remember sit still. (laughs) make eye contact, you know, like you're trying to remember to do these things that don't come naturally to you. And so then it actually does make it harder to learn. It makes a lot harder. So there's a lot that we can do. But one of the things that I love, if you have a child with ADHD, or if you have ADHD, or especially if both are true, is implementing what's called universal design. Um, setting up an environment in a way that it's going to be functional for the least functional person in the household. Ideally, putting labels on things is going to help the people who do need that label. That's going to make that area more accessible to them while also making it easier for everybody else.
1: We're talking to Jessica McCabe. Her new book is How to ADHD, and we'll be right back. while Jessica, I want to make sure we have lots of time to talk about strategies that work and toolbox, because that is your book is so full of those things. And it seems to me that what makes this book a little bit different than some of the other ADHD books I've read or people that we've interviewed is that this is for the person with ADHD strategies that they can apply to themselves. And then, of course, as a parent also, if that applies
2: Yeah. As I did my YouTube channel, there were two things I was trying to figure out. What is going on? Like, why am I struggling with this stuff? And what do I do about it? And so that's what this book is. It's why are we struggling with these things? And then what do we do about it? So every chapter has a toolbox section with four or five main tools for tackling whatever that chapter is about, how to motivate your brain, how to sleep, how to execute a function, how to focus. There's every chapter has a toolbox with these main tools and then a bunch of sub strategies that are different ways to implement this tool. I think it was really important to me to do it that way because there are so many strategies out there for ADHD, but I think it's important to understand like what type of strategy is this because then it it gets a little bit less overwhelming. Mm. And there's so many
1: things been going through this book. There are so many things that I circled like that's ADHD too. That's really specific behavior. Wow, I didn't know. But there's it's all part of the same thing. And as you say, like it's by connecting with others. I'm sure this is why the YouTube channel has grown such a following. It's a community, right? Just like this podcast. Oh, my gosh. There are people just like me who feel the same way I do, who struggle with the same things I do. I'm not crazy and I'm not alone.
2: That's exactly it. It's getting all these things That can feel shameful, like, oh, I shouldn't be struggling with this. Like, don't tell anybody. Talking about that in the open and having this community of other people that are also talking about it, it normalizes the struggles, which is really important because these struggles are normal when you have ADHD. Just like there are struggles that are normal when you are a parent, there are struggles that are normal when you have ADHD, but everybody kind of feels like they shouldn't be struggling with that. So it's really empowering to get that out in the open and have these conversations. So I did in my book too, I included quotes from the community about the things that they struggled with, as well as the strategies that worked for them. So you're not only hearing tools and strategies and getting a deeper understanding from me, but also from people in my community as well.
1: Let's talk about some of the strategies that are in the book, because there are so many. And I know a lot of people listening are like, give me some strategies. So tell us a little bit more about that, how you might play that out in your household.
2: So universal design, again, it's things that make it accessible to people who have disabilities or makes things accessible to the people who struggle the hardest. So like if you imagine curb cutouts. That's really important for people who are in like motorized wheelchairs, because how else are they going to get up and down off of curbs? Having those curb cutouts is, is really critical for them in terms of making a sidewalk accessible. But it also is really helpful for people who are just wheeling luggage. Like you could get up the curb with your luggage without a curb cutout, but the curb cutout makes it easier. Or riding those dope little electric scooters. Right.
1: Or stroller.
2: Yeah, strollers, like, yeah, it's those curb cutouts are helpful for everybody, but they're really critical for somebody who's in a wheelchair. Universal design for somebody with ADHD might look like having whiteboards and sticky notes and pens available, having supplies ready and able to be used wherever you might need them. Having sit-stand desks or different seating options in a classroom is a really good example because sometimes I need to be up front at a desk and sitting there really close to the teacher and sometimes my anxiety is really bad that day and it's actually better for me to be, you know, sitting on a couch in the back of the room or sitting on the floor. Having those options be available is really helpful. Having meeting-free days... Is really critical. It's again something that's helpful for everybody, but for people with ADHD who need to be able to slip into hyper focus and be able to lose track of time to be able to get into any sort of meaningful focus, it's really important that they don't have to keep watching the clock and worrying about missing a meeting. So having meeting-free days is another example. There's so many different ways to create an environment where it's more accessible to somebody with ADHD, but it's helpful for everybody else as well, and that's good for everybody. That's what I love about it. It benefits everybody so like why are we not doing this
1: i was thinking that as you were saying this like i love a meeting free day i plan a couple every week i want all my meetings in one day and then one day where i can just write or do whatever i need to do so you're right these are strategies that make everybody's life better and then maybe it's more essential for certain people talk about tracking your time and how long something will take versus how long it did take
2: yeah, schedules are the bane of <laughs> a lot of people with ADHD's existence. This, it's one of the first things that, that doctors or coaches or whatever will say, like, have you tried using a calendar? Like, yes. And it falls apart immediately, right? One of the reasons for that is because people with ADHD are essentially time blind or time nearsighted. We have really a lot of difficulty telling how much time has passed, estimating how long something will take us. And so if we put a calendar together, if we outline, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this on Monday and this on Tuesday. And like, we've got 15 things on our calendar. Well, that's going to fall apart immediately and get frustrating, right? Like I ended up spending so much time putting my calendar together in the first place, like figuring out what I need to do and when am I gonna do it and planning it all out, that took me longer than it would take a a neurotypical person. But then I would immediately be off track and immediately feel like I was failing. Well, that's because I didn't know how long things actually took me is not a possible schedule to stick to because that is not how time works. That is not how long these things actually take, me at least. So I was planning for somebody that was maybe neurotypical or even superhuman sometimes. So learning how long things actually take me not like on a good day when every, everything's firing on all cylinders and it's urgent and I can pull stuff out of my butt, but like an average day, like how long things take me was really important. And the way that I did that, I got from ADHD coach, Eric Tivers. he recommends to really get the use out of this, write a list of some of the really common tasks you do. What do you do on a regular basis? Do you take a shower? Do you walk the dog? Do you get ready and drive to work? Just tasks that that you do on a regular basis. Write those down and then write down how long you think that task is going to take you and then set a count up timer, not a countdown timer, because you want to know exactly how long it takes you. You don't want to just know when it when the timer goes off. So you set a count up timer and then you go and see you go and do the thing and come back and write down how long it actually took. And that can give you a really good sense of, do you tend to underestimate how long things take? Not usually for people with ADHD. Do you tend to overestimate how long tasks are going to take? And if so, how much do you tend to underestimate how long that task is going to take? And then you can start to plan a little bit better. If you're like, usually like 30% off, you usually think that you can get it done in 10 minutes, but it actually takes you 15. Cool. Now you know, you need to add an extra 50%. Anytime you're like, your brain convinces you like, oh, this will only take an hour. Cool. Give yourself an hour and a half.
1: (laughs) And what about reality checks? This was something else I thought was a a great tip. It was sort of in terms of this, the time, like, am I right about this, that packing for vacation will take 20 minutes?
2: Yeah. Part of it is going to somebody else and saying, hey, is this gonna work? Like, is this how time works? Because sometimes they can tell you somebody, sometimes somebody else can look at your schedule and be like, yeah, that is not gonna work. You didn't leave yourself any buffer time for food, right? Like you planned a 10 hour day, and there is no time for lunch. When are you gonna eat? When are you gonna pee? When are you gonna, right? Like getting that reality check from another human can be really, really helpful. And that human can even be somebody with ADHD, because we're, (laughs) one of the interesting things about ADHD is, For our own stuff, we're pretty impaired. The hot executive function system, which is when emotions come into play, when something's important to you personally, that can kind of skew. Our ability to function, whereas our cool executive function is a bit more logical. So that's when there aren't emotions at play. So somebody with ADHD can look at somebody else's calendar who has ADHD and they're tapping into their cool executive function and can be a little bit more logical and practical about it. Whereas the person with ADHD might be in their hot executive function because they're like, I'm really excited about this and I can cram all this in. So the other person can look at it and be like, no, you can't because right, they can be a little bit more cool and logical about it. So It doesn't even have to be a neurotypical person looking at your schedule. Just get somebody who isn't you, who isn't as invested in what you're trying to cram in that day to look at what you're doing and give you that reality check and help you prioritize. Maybe like it can be a really great thing to go to your boss or your partner and say like, hey, I've got these 15 things on my plate today. I don't think I can do all of them. Can you help me decide which are the the top two or three that I need to focus on?
1: We've been talking to Jessica McCabe. She is the author of the brand new book, How to ADHD, an insider's guide to working with your brain, not against it. She's also the creator of the YouTube channel, How to ADHD. So... Jessica, I'll put the links to the YouTube channel and the book and the show notes for this episode, but tell everybody who's listening or who might be driving right now or doing something else right now, all the places they can find you.
2: Yeah, you can Google How to ADHD, honestly. I'm at How to ADHD across all the platforms. You can get the book at HowtoADHDbook.com and I'm pretty easy to find. Just Google How to ADHD and you'll find me.
1: Thank you so much. This is such a useful book. Whether you have ADHD, whether you parent somebody with ADHD, whether you're in a relationship with somebody who has ADHD, you will learn so much from this book. Jessica, thanks for talking to me today.
2: Thanks, Amy. These questions are great.
3: (laughs) No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why?
4: The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it